The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported back to him everything that they had done and all that they had taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a little. For there were many people coming and going and they hadn't found time to eat. And so they went away by boat to a desert place by themselves. But the people saw, saw them as they withdrew and many recognised them. On foot the people ran, ran out together from all the cities and arrived there ahead of them. When Jesus got off the boat, he saw a great crowd and he felt compassion for them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. The hour was now late when his disciples came and told him that the place was deserted and that a lot of time had passed. They tried to dismiss the people that they might go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy for themselves something to eat. But in response, Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go out and buy twenty denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? But he said to them, How much bread do you have? Go and see. And they found out and said, Five loaves and two fish. He ordered them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down into groups of 100 and 500. Jesus then took the five loaves of bread and the two fish, looked up to heaven and gave thanks. He broke the bread and gave it to his disciples for them to hand out to the people and divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and had their fill of food and there were 12 baskets full left over of bread. Also from the fish there were 5,000 men who had eaten. Amen. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Langdon. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, I hope you're enjoying hearing from Mark, this historian who writes about Jesus. I hope you're enjoying hearing from him because his words are God's words, but I hope you're enjoying it because this guy, Mark... This historian is certainly a storyteller with a story to tell. And what I love about Mark is he's an upfront kind of guy who tells you from the very beginning of his story what he wants to tell you about. Verse 1 in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, Mark's story, he says, The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. From the very beginning, he tells you what his story is about. His story is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he breaks his story into two main elements of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He wants to tell you who Jesus is, and he wants to tell you what he's come to do. And maybe he's signaled this to us already in his introduction where he says, this is the story, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See, in calling Jesus the Christ a title that was given to others before. This is a title that belonged to a man called Solomon, belonged to a man called David, belonged to a man called Saul. Already, Mark is saying, I've got something to tell you about what this guy's come to do. See, he is the Christ. What is the Christ? The Christ is the person who God has anointed to be the mediator of his blessing. You can go to places like Psalm 2, which teach us that the Christ is God's anointed one, and if you're with him, then you're with God. If you're an enemy of his, then you're an enemy of God's. The Christ is one who God appoints and anoints 
to reign on his behalf on earth, to mediate his blessings or his curses to the world. And so you find out something immediately just in this introduction about what Jesus has come to do. But you also find out something about who he is because Mark says, this storyteller who wants to tell you who he is and what he's come to do says, he's the son of God. Now you might be uh, mistaken and go, whoa, so he's saying he's divine. Not quite. Son of God is not the same as God the Son. In fact, Son of God is a title that's been given to other humans as well. Again, David, Solomon, both referred to as Son of God. What this means is God is Mark is saying, this is the, who is this guy? He's God's chosen king. So Son of God is language that has popped up in the Bible before and been said of guys like David, Solomon. It's popped up in broader society as well. Uh, the pharaohs considered themselves as God's choice and would say, son of God. Uh, there are other leaders like the Romans. Also, their emperor might call himself son of God. In the Persian em- Empire, the king called himself son of God. Uh, even in some of the ancient Chinese uh, empires, son of God. I'm the chosen one who God has picked out to reign and to rule. And so Mark says, this is the guy, who is he? He's God's chosen king. What has he come to do? He's come to mediate God's blessings and God's curses. He's the place to look. And Mark's going to do a bunch of things as he tells his story of Jesus. He wants to tell us who he is and what he's come to do. Now, one of the ways he does this is a very common way that we all do when we're trying to introduce ourselves. He uses a name. He uses titles. So already in our reading up to chapter 6 in Mark's Gospel, let me me give you a couple of things, a couple of titles that Mark uses to introduce Jesus. He calls him Jesus. That's his name. He calls him Christ. He calls him Son of God. He calls him Son of Man. He calls him Lord. He calls him Holy One of God. He calls him Bridegroom. He calls him Teacher. He calls him Prophet. Now these are all different titles, all different names for Jesus and as you know, they don't all mean the same thing. But what they do is they give us an opportunity to stand around this man Jesus and understand him from different perspectives. He's the teacher, he's also the prophet, he's the son of man which is not the same as the son of God and we get a picture of who we should be looking for, how do we identify Jesus by these titles, and we get a picture of what he's come to do. If you like the language, uh, when you're reading commentaries and things like that, you'll, you'll find this is called titular Christology. This is how we establish who Jesus is, what he's come to do, by the titles that are assigned to him. But Mark blesses us further. This guy is a master storyteller. Because he offers for us not just a titular Christology or a a, a personage and a a work by title. He's a storyteller. So he gives us what you might call a narrative Christology as well. By watching the things that Jesus does, by seeing what he participates in and the story he is a part of, just like any of us, you get a picture of who this guy is. You get a picture of what he's come to do. Already in our reading, what have we seen? We've seen Jesus baptised. We've seen Jesus tempted. We've seen Jesus preaching. We've seen Jesus teaching. I feel like I should say, matter of fact, I've got one now, but I'm not going to. 
we see Jesus healing, we see Jesus forgiving, contending, exorcising, not exercising, exorcising, extracting demons from people. We see Jesus sending, we see Jesus calming a storm, we see Jesus raising the dead, and today we see a miraculous feeding of 5,000 plus people. Now again, you can see you didn't need just a title to tell you that someone who calms a storm and raises the dead, who is able to forgive sin, there's your divine claim. You're getting a real picture of who this Jesus is. Mark's doing a great job, gives us the titles. He tells us the stories, but he blesses us further. Another great way to introduce someone is by contrast. You can say, well, Bon Jovi's kind of like Van Halen, but a bit later on. And maybe the guitarist's not quite as good. We could vote on that later, I don't know. That's what Mark does here as well. He shows us people who we can contrast with Jesus and he offers us contrast so we get a picture of who he is and what he's come to do, why he's so special. So in the very beginning, when Jesus is baptised, there's a contrast with a man called John the Baptist, who no doubt was Anglican. John the Anglican Baptist comes along and he's baptising people and everyone's hearing him. Why? They receive this camel's hair wearing, locust and wild honey eating prophets as the prophet of God. John the Baptist is prophet of God like Samuel was prophet of God, like Elijah was prophet of God. He's God's prophet of the time and people are responding to him, heeding his warnings, being baptised. In fact, all of Judea and the Jerusalem countryside. Well, John the Baptist, who is heeded and heard, says, wait, as Mark records it. The one coming after me If you compare him with me, he far surpasses me. He's far beyond me. I couldn't do up his bootlaces. This guy is beyond me. I baptise you with water, but take a look. Pharisaic leader. He's Lord of the Sabbath. This guy is different. Mark wants to show you again by contrast that Jesus is above and beyond these guys. And significantly, John the Baptist, the Satan, the Jewish leadership, very significantly for us today, and as we read the Gospels, Jesus is contrasted with a man called Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee. Matthew, Mark and Luke all speak of Herod Antipas, the common character John, the, uh, John, the fourth gospel writer, writes his gospel also with the shadow of Herod in the background. Uh, the historian and New Testament scholar Paul Barnett, no relation to our beloved Ian, says you cannot underestimate the importance of understanding Herod Antipas as you're trying to understand Jesus and how his story is told. And so I'm going to give us a little bit of time understanding this Herod Antipas. You see, there are some real similarities between Herod Antipas and Jesus of Nazareth. These are both two men who are called king by Mark, but they're not king yet. Jesus is called the Christ, called the Son of God in the first verse, 
but he's not the king yet. That will be confirmed by his resurrection. Mark calls Herod Antipas the king, but he's not actually a king yet. He's a, what's called a tetrarch. These men are very similar in that they both have great claims to kingship. These men both have followers. Herod's got the Herodians, which sounds like a band, Herod and the Herodians, playing at Anita's. You can see it. Jesus has his disciples. They both have followers. They both have people who would contend for them. Both have powerful dads. And both you could be forgiven for thinking returned from the dead. Because you remember, maybe, maybe you're not like me, but as a kid I was so confused that when we put on at school the Christmas play thing, there was a guy called Herod and he wants to kill all the baby boys and then he dies. And then when we put on the Easter show, there's a guy called Herod that Jesus gets sent to. Now you might think, wow, that guy got really old or that guy came back from the dead or someone made a mistake or maybe there's two guys. Of course there are two guys, but it's a mistake easily made as you can get confused with all these names. So it's worth understanding the landscape that Jesus is being presented by Mark as king who has come for you. So let me tell you a little bit about this Herod Antipas. He, of course, is not the same Herod that we hear about at Jesus' birth. That is his dad a guy called King Herod or Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great is morally just a loony tune. This is a guy who wanted to have all the most loved nobles in the land executed on the day of his death just to make sure everyone would actually feel sad on the day he died. He wrote that into into his will. (coughs) But Herod, Herod the Great, who was actually king, a client king, but a king nonetheless, he did what kings do. He planned his succession. He had a will and he planned, who will succeed me? And Herod's sons did what king's sons tend to do. They think about which one of us will get to succeed dad. Well, Herod had a son, as you know, called Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was sent off in his youth to Rome and was educated in Rome and had all the makings. He was the star standout among his brothers. He had all the makings for being the next king. Now that got easier because Herod the Great did execute two of his brothers when they got a little bit too close to the action. But nonetheless, Herod Antipas was the guy, apple of his dad's eye at this stage, and in Herod's penultimate will, there it was, Herod Antipas is the guy who's meant to succeed me. Wouldn't be a good story without a twist. And I did say penultimate. On his deathbed, five days before he dies, Herod changed his mind and named Herod Antipas's brother Archelaus, his successor. Now you've got to see these guys. Think old school Prince Harry and Prince William. Prince William's kind of the guy where you go, yeah, I get it, that guy will be king one day. Prince Harry likes to party. I mean, pre-Megan Markle Harry. Harry when he was partying with everyone and anyone and drinking too much and doing all that sort of stuff. Well, Archelaus, 
is now his father's choice to be king. And so Herod, who seemed on a trajectory to be king, and this is what I want you to see, that this is a man who comes agonizingly close time and time again to being the king. Well, he watches his brother get named by his dad, but Rome's in charge. Rome reads uh, what Herod's got in mind and goes, yeah, cute, we're not going to do that. They don't name any of them king. Instead, and this is important as you read the Gospels, what they do is they say we're going to divide this kingdom up into three. There's going to be an ethnarchy and there's going to be two tetrarchies. Archelaus is going to be the ethnarch. Arch means ruler and an ethnarch is a ruler of a half. Archelaus gets half. He's going to be in charge of that. Herod Antipas and his brother Philip... Well, they're going to be tetrarchs. You remember the Bible language, Herod the Tetrarch? Now you're going to know what it means. He is the ruler of a quarter. So you've got Philip, you've got Herod Antipas, and you've got Archelaus the Ethnarch. Next scene, well, uh, Herod Antipas and Philip watch their brother Archelaus, the old school Prince Harry of his day, and as he's partying hard, wearing questionable outfits to fancy dress things and, uh, well, killing lots of people, which Romans don't like, they like order. Antipas and Philip put their heads together. They go to Rome and plead a case against Archelaus because what are they thinking? Get rid of the ethnarch and I've just bettered my chances of moving towards kingship. So they go to Rome, they complain about Archelaus. Rome goes, yeah, that sounds terrible. So they punt Archelaus, they get rid of him. But just before Philip and Antipas are ready to praise this great succession towards kingship, they go, yeah, yeah, we'll get rid of that guy. And instead they install a Roman prefect as the ethnarch. Now I don't remember what the first one's name is, but we all know the guy who replaces him. He'll get famous later on. His name's Pontius Pilate. You've heard of him in the Easter story. So here is Herod Antipas, who will reign as Tetrarch from 4 BC to 39 AD and do an amazingly good job. By breeding, he was the star among his brothers. By performance, he is the star among his brothers. I mean, this guy does a good job. So much so that in his later years, he hasn't given up on he should be king. The trouble is, his Roman benefactor, a guy called Tiberius, dies. Tiberius is replaced by a man called Caligula. Caligula then appoints, this is going to hurt if you're an Antipas fan. Caligula appoints a man king, and you'll read about him in Acts. His name is Herod Agrippa. And he's Antipas's nephew. Ouch! Well, Antipas, who has a claim at kingship by breeding, by performance, he and his wife Herodias, who is, as you might know, the former wife of his brother. Now, some say they married for love. I wonder if taking your brother's wife is a first sign of, I plan to take your kingdom as well. He and his wife, who sounds like she doesn't mind a bit of power herself, they sail to Rome 
to go and see the emperor. My interpretation of the historical truths is, as they walk in, the emperor is actually reading a letter. Puts down the letter and says, I'm glad you're here. Herod thinks, great, I'm here to claim the kingship. What's the emperor reading? He's reading a list of complaints about Herod Antipas from Herod Agrippa. And the emperor says, you won't be going back, you won't be becoming king. You won't be going back to your tetrarchy. No, you two will be exiled to a place called Gaul and you'll never see your home again. The end. And so is the painful story of a man who could have been king called Herod Antipas. A man who time and again, and I've only given you the headlines, comes painfully close. But a man who I commend, and hence I've invested the time in it this morning, you must understand he and his political landscape, his aspirations to understand what Mark and the other gospel writers are trying to do for you when they mention him and when his shadow is felt as they present to you the man called Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And right here in our reading this morning in Mark chapter 6, if, if Herod Antipas, who, as I said, reigned from 4 BC to 39 AD, reigned throughout the lifetime of Jesus of Nazareth and was always in the background, right here and now, in your reading this morning, and if you're using one of these books, in the accompanying pages, the pages that look at one another, is a contrast of the would-be King Herod and the would-be King Jesus. There is a direct comparison. And the comparison is given by way of two banquets. One banquet is Herod's and it's held in a palace. One banquet is Jesus and it's held at a picnic. And the two could not be more different. In these two banquets, I want to show you briefly this morning that you will see something of the nature of those gathered and indeed you'll see something of the nature of the one who would be king. Now you can read later about the palace banquet. It's on the previous page, it's verses 14 to 29. But the story goes that it was Herod's birthday. He had a party. He called in all the best, all the big hitters. They were there for his party. Things go awry during the party because after a few drinks... He starts speaking big and, uh, well, his wife's daughter does a dance that is pretty impressive. So in his big talk, he says, you know, ask me anything you want. I've got that kind of power. Up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. Like that. She confers with her mum and they ask for the head of John the Baptist. Now, the reason for that is because John the Baptist, whilst he is the prophet of the day, here's the trouble with prophets. They tell you stuff you want to know because they reveal God's truths, and they tell you stuff you need to know, because they reveal God's truths, and God's truths from time to time will rebuke you, and uh, God's truths were rebuking Herod for taking his brother's wife. So John the Baptist was quite inconvenient to Herod I, the wife. So anyway, uh, what would I like? Dancing girl says, how about John the Baptist's head on a plate? Herod doesn't want to do it. Because he's caught in this tension of, this guy speaks things I want to learn, but I am disturbed by him, but uh, look at all my guests, I shot my mouth off and now I kind of, all my hands are tied. 
and it results in the murder of the prophet, the leader, the shepherd of the day, John the Baptist, and he's put to death. What do we learn in this little episode about the nature of those gathered and the character of the king that will shine light on our story that I'll come to in a moment? Well, the nature of those gathered is the guests is outlined in verse 21. I'm just going to backtrack a little. On his birthday, Herod prepared a feast for his distinguished officials, his commanders and the prominent men of Galilee. These are the high administrators, the army commanders and the owners of estates. They're the brains, they're the brawn and they're the builders of the time. They're influential people and they are invited to the party. What do we learn about the king? This king makes his decisions based on the status of his guests. Verse 26. Verse 26 says this. Though the king was overwhelmed with grief, grief because of the oaths he took and his guests at the table, he did not want to refuse her. Probably a good thing at this point for Herod Antipas to do it, being on say, "Oh, things have got a little bit out of hand tonight." Great dance, love the dance. Keep up the keep up the dance lessons. I spoke wrongly. Should, sh- shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that. The, the guy's in prison. Let's leave him there. Shh, John the Baptist, stay there. But we're not going to kill a guy over this. I don't want to do that. But he'd already spoken. This is a king who makes decisions based on the status of his guests, feeling the weight of expectation. And that's the end of John the Baptist, the prophet of God. This king's decisions are based on the status of his guests. This king's decision is careless. I don't just mean it's sloppy and silly. I mean it cares less. It does not care for anybody else but himself. That's how he makes his decisions. This decision, this king called a banquet and by the end demonstrates that he's not a sovereign because he has lost control of the banquet. The banquet started at his calling, but it didn't end the way he planned. This king robs God's people of their prophet, of their shepherd, of their leader by the murder of John the Baptist, who was Anglican. John the Anglican Baptist. Thanks for the chuckle. That's the kind of would-be king that we're now meant to venture to the next banquet to contrast against. Who's gathered at Jesus' banquet? Verses 31 to 33 will tell us. Jesus said to his disciples, Come away by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going and they hadn't found time to eat. And so they went away by boat to a desert place by themselves. But the, people, but the people saw them as they withdrew, and many recognized them. On foot, the people ran out together from all the cities and arrived there ahead of them. Mark gives us a picture here of Jesus, who is not a private jet kind of guy, but Jesus and his disciples take the, well, the sensible route across the lake in a boat. 
The picture we're meant to understand here is of people just coming from everywhere, something like a riot. These are not your brains, your brawn, your builders. These are your downright desperate and... I haven't got another D word, but they come. They all just come. They scramble. They run on foot. In fact, some commentators say this is like an animalistic picture of desperados running for hopeful help. The guests are not the high officials. They're kind of pictured as random and wild. What does this would-be king do? Well, the previous one, he robbed God's people of their prophet, of their shepherd. This king looks and sees them and declares that they are like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. He sees their need. What does he do about it? He teaches them. He steps up and gives them a God encounter by teaching them God's word. He teaches them. But more, as you know, this miraculous miracle takes place. And this miraculous miracle, in the most wonderful way, if you pay attention to the details, shows you that Jesus has come, this would-be king, to be the shepherd. Do you remember that famous psalm, so famous that 1990s rapper Coolio started Gangster's Paradise with it? Psalm 23. You knew that, right? Because you're like Coolio. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. What happens here? This shepherd lord, this shepherd king, brings a people who are desperate, who have found nothing to eat, and causes them not to want anymore. He's going to fill their tummies. Just like Psalm 23, he's going to prepare a banquet for them. Their cup will overflow. Just like 12 baskets collected up from a very small amount of food that now overflows for everybody. What does the Lord my shepherd do? He calls me, he leads me to green pasture. Where does Jesus call them to sit? He calls and Mark just happens to let us know on the green grass. This is a Psalm 23 retelling. This is Jesus being the shepherd. One, one would-be king murders the shepherd. The other would-be king bees the shepherd. He calls them, sit on the grass. You shall not be in want. Let me fill you holistically. Let me fill your soul with the word of God. Let me fill your belly with over a year's worth of food. And it will be overflowing, pressed down and spilling over and all those words. All those wonderful things. Let me bring you peace. One king lost control of the banquet he started and showed the kind of power he has. The other king, Jesus, he didn't invite anyone to his palace for a party. He had retreated and everyone turned up for a picnic. He didn't ask for a banquet, but he takes ownership of the banquet. What kind of king? He's a sovereign king. This ends the way he plans it to end. One king is careless. He makes decisions that do not care for others, just himself. The other king is careful. He will fill their tummies. These people are hungry. They may become weak on their way home. These people are like sheep without a shepherd. Let me shepherd them. Let me teach them. Let me be there for them. Let me fill them to fullness. 
One king's decisions are based on the status of his guests. Herod, seeing the guests around him, lost his gut, lost his nerve, didn't do what he wanted to do, but did what he felt compelled to do. This king, this would-be king does not make his decision based on the status of his guests. Let me show you from verse 34. And here is the take-home This is what you came for. This is the key verse. This is the moneymaker. Verse 34, when Jesus got off the boat, he saw a great crowd and he felt compassion for them. You might say, well, of course he did. There were these desperate people and he pitied them. "Mm, People who can leave you like this. You know, Jesus is Palestinian. He remembered his mum's word. You stop in. You must eat. Not what's happening. You might say Jesus saw them and he thought, wow, we've got food, we've got lunch, they haven't, social justice movement, we, we, I feel guilty, so let's all have. No, it happened. Jesus' compassion here comes from a, an ancient Greek word that I'm going to teach you this morning. I want you to learn it. Uh, it's splagna. Say it with me, one, two, three. Splagna. You know what it means? It means guts. I kid you not, it means bowels. It literally means entrails. I guess in the ancient Greek world, in the New Testament mind, you think stuff with your brain, you believe stuff, your convictions sit in your cardia, your heart, but you really feel and you really take ownership in your bowels. It goes deeper. This is a king who had splugna. This is a king who does not make his decisions based on the status of his guest, but on the content of his character. This is a king who has splagna. Now there are two things for us to learn here, one about ourselves and one about Jesus. So often we stress a lot about our status, about our worthiness. And with good intention, we try to encourage one another. If someone feels unworthy, no, you're worthy, you're good, you're good enough. And that's a well-intentioned empowerment statement. And and you know what? Even a little while in our church, we did it, and I think it's a mistake. Uh, We had a Mother's Day um, photo booth, and there little signs you could hold up. And one of them we could hold up. I think my family held one up and said, worthy. According to who are you worthy? You're not worthy. You deserve death. You deserve sin. Sorry, you sin, you deserve condemnation. You deserve hell. You're not worthy. Now that sounds awful to say. But I'm simply telling you what the scriptures say and what God says. This is true of us and we feel so depleted because isn't everyone like Herod? Isn't everything like Herod where we respond according to someone's worth and value? And some of our, our children and our teens as they grow up have, trem- and, and maybe it doesn't go away with your teens, have tremendous battles and struggles as they want to feel worthy and we tell them they're worthy but somewhere inside themselves they know that they sin and God reminds them and they know that they're not good enough. And the evil one comes along to all of us and says, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. And... I don't hear those voices in my head, but 
that's the sort of picture. And we try to respond with, yes, I am, but I know I'm not. And here's where we want to invite the voice of the Holy Spirit, who also convicts the world of sin and says, you're not good enough. But not that we will be condemned. Instead, the Spirit wants us to look away from the kingship of one like Herod Antipas and toward the kingship of Jesus who has splugna. Why does Jesus receive these people? Why does Jesus receive every person who turns to him regardless of the content of their life? Because Jesus has splugna. He has something built into his guts that loves others. He has grace. He is gracious. He loves according to him, not according to you. And so though you may feel upset, dare I say offended, when I stand here and say you're not worthy, you deserve death, you deserve hell, so do I, so do my children, so do yours. That's not the end of the story. The story is one of a king who doesn't need you to be worthy, but according to his splagna, according to his compassion, according to his grace, loves you anyway. So you don't need self-esteem because you can have Christ-esteem. For he loves you anyway. I tried to explain this once upon a time and there was a Greek mother in the congregation who rebuked me afterwards and said, you'll never understand Spagna. And I said, oh, look, I do Koine Greek. It's ancient Greek. Blah, blah. She said, yeah, I know all that. She said, it's not because you're not Greek. It's because you're not a mum. She said, Splugna is what you feel for someone who came from your body. When a child came from your womb, no matter what they do, no matter what they become, no matter where they go, a part of you will always be connected to them and you just can't move away from it. I'm not worthy and neither are you, but do not worry because the would-be king who became king, is the king who has the guts to love. He has the bowels for you, Shari. He's got the guts for you, Dave. He's got the entrails for you, Faye. Somewhere stitched into his character, into the character of God, is grace. And so to quote the great Martin Luther, when the devil comes to you and tells you, you're not worthy, you deserve hell and death, you tell him, what of it? I know I deserve hell and death. But I have a king who made satisfaction for me. A king who loves according to his grace, according to his splagna. And he receives me. His name is Jesus Christ the righteous. And where he is, there I shall be. You can play with the content of the, the miracle and all that sort of stuff. I want you to see the king. I want you to see the king whose character is gracious and welcomes anyone who will come to him. So let me leave you with this. Who else or what else would you give your life to? Who will love you, provide for you, 
lead you and feed you, not based on your quality, but on his splugner alone. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he reflects your character, that one that is gracious. And we thank you as confronting as it is to consider ourselves not worthy, that that doesn't obliterate us, that that doesn't rob us at all. Instead, that leads us to come to the King who is compassionate, gracious, loving and merciful. And so, Father God, we repent of our well-intentioned empowerment statements. We repent of those and instead we turn to Jesus, the King of compassion, the King of grace, the King of mercy, who though he knows we are not worthy, looks upon us and says, I will be your shepherd, I will lead you into my kingdom and I will secure you for eternity. In his name we pray. Amen.